Great to be here. My name is Pete Stacey. I'm the Evening Pastor. And as we come to God's Word, let's pray together. Dear Father, please open our minds and our hearts as we open your Word. Amen. Well, we're well into the book of Acts now. And uh, there's such a clear pattern of gospel progress closely followed by gospel opposition. Progress, opposition. Progress, opposition. And uh, it began with Jesus' command back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We can probably all say it or, or sing it by now. Uh, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit filled them with power and oh, some people made fun of them. Maybe yeah, one or two on the opposition scale. Uh, then they began speaking the good news about Jesus and thousands of people turned to Christ. And that got the attention of the religious leaders and so they had the first of many theological battles about who Jesus is. But the gospel kept advancing and thousands more were saved because the, uh, and as that happened, because the church made up of sinful people, wasn't long before a moral battle occurred inside the church. And these same kinds of issues have plagued the church ever since, haven't they? Fights because of what we believe, and problems because of how we behave, <laughs> and people sneering from the sidelines. <laughs> so true, isn't it? And then last week, it was like a, a, a great tennis rally or ping-pong rally. Yeah, the apostles preach in public, then they're arrested. Released by an angel, preach again. Arrested again. Court order not to preach. So what does he do? He preaches to the courtroom full of priests. And then they're flogged and released. And what do they do? Yep, you guessed it. They keep preaching about Jesus a whole lot more. Now, we didn't get to uh, chapter 6 last week, but look at 6, verse 7. So the word of God spread in the face of all this opposition. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And, and get this bit, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And I wonder, I wonder if that was because Peter was bold enough to speak the good news about Jesus to them even when he was on trial. Years later, the Apostle Paul told Timothy, preach the gospel in season and out of season. Well, Peter, in trial in the courtroom, that was very out of season. <coughs> I just wonder if Paul was there in the room. And then in uh, today's reading, we see the first person killed because they followed Jesus and were prepared to be his witness. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. And now the opposition scale is redlining. And through the centuries, <coughs> countless thousands have followed in his footsteps. What is shocking though is that I heard this recently that more Christians have been killed for their faith in the last century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. In many countries today, Christians are harassed, discriminated against, slandered, unjustly accused, arrested without warrant, and sometimes imprisoned, beaten, exiled, and killed. Usually by local governments or uh, uh, you know, 
religious extremists and our suffering brothers and sisters need us to stand with them in fervent prayer. Friends, keep your Bibles open as we look and learn from the life of Stephen. Let's, let's see what type of man he was. Look at how he's described. Chapter 6, verse 3. Full of the Spirit and wisdom. To be full of there means to be completely under the control of. 6, verse 5. A man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. 6, verse 8. A man full of God's grace and power. He performed great wonders and signs among the people. 6 verse 10. He had wisdom given by the Spirit as he spoke. And if we weren't convinced about his integrity yet, verse 15 says his face was like the face of an angel. Just like Moses, whose face shone with the radiance of God's glory. It was a clear indication of God's approval. It's quite clear from what we read here that Stephen was an exceptionally gifted and godly man. He obviously had a heart for the poor. That's why he was picked in the first place and the marginalised in the community. And he was a gifted communicator. And yet, look what happened to him. Brutally killed because of the words he spoke. It's a sober reminder, friends, that no follower of Christ no matter how outstanding they may be, is immune to persecution. Do you remember when Jesus warned his disciples about persecution that would come in the future? In Luke's first book, uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 12, he said this. It's on the screen. Uh, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you, should, what you should say. Friends, that's exactly what's going on here. Stephen is on trial. He's had no time to prepare a speech for this very moment. Didn't see his name coming up on the sermon roster. Just there he is. And the Holy Spirit is giving him a message to speak. Imagine the courtroom. Stephen has been dragged in and sits in the witness box to be interrogated. But it's clear that the prosecutor, the judge and jury are all on the same side against him. Stephen stands alone. Now priests have already tried arguing him in the public square and they failed miserably. So they kind of produce some false witness who twist his words regarding two main issues. You can see them there in verses 13 and 14. The law of Moses and the temple... And we can see from verse 14 that Stephen's views came straight from Jesus. This is not just an attack on Stephen. It's an attack on Jesus. And these issues are no small issues. The law of Moses is the very foundation of the whole Old Testament. And the temple, well that was the whole focus of their worship where God met with his people. And it was the priest's job, remember, to accurately teach the law and faithfully administer all that happened in the temple. And, and along comes Stephen, and he's teaching something radically different to the priests and the teachers of the law. So the question is, who's right? This is showdown time. Who's right? 
And, and why were they right? And, and for our benefit, why does it matter anyway? Look at chapter 7. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? And what follows is the longest defence of the Christian faith in the whole New Testament. And Stephen's straight away on the front foot. He turns the tables. He's like the prosecutor here, drawing on their own shared history. And he clearly shows that all his accusers have got it wrong. They've got God wrong. They've got the temple wrong. They've got the law of Moses wrong. And they stand condemned. They have misunderstood their own history. They have misrepresented their God. And they have misled his people. Let's have a look. History lesson number one. God cannot be contained by people. Or a temple. The priests and teachers of the law thought they had God. Because they were Abraham's descendants. And, and they had the temple in Jerusalem, in the heart of Israel. Stephen begins warmly appealing to their security. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And straight away all his listeners are probably just starting to relax a little bit. Yeah, preach this, brother. Uh, but look at verse 2. Where does the glory of God appear? Mesopotamia? That's, that's whoop-whoop. Nowhere near Israel, let alone the temple. And then oh, Abraham obeys and along comes Isaac, then Jacob and his 12 sons. And, and he keeps recounting the history of the patriarchs, uh, the family leaders of Israel. And what are they like? We'll have a look at verse 9. It's Joseph, Joseph. Last week we explored the whole sin of jealousy. And they sell Joseph as a slave in Egypt. Now, some of us have probably thought of selling a sibling to slavery before. Nothing uh, uh, particularly new. But, but notice even when he goes to Egypt, he's not alone. Who's with him? Verse 9. What? God. In Egypt. That's, that's back a Burke or something like that. From Israel let alone the temple. Skip down to Moses. And where does he encounter God? Verse 30 and verse 38. In the desert, in the wilderness, up Mount Sinai, still not in the promised land, let alone the temple. And when they finally did get to the promised land, and then Solomon builds this beautiful temple at the opening ceremony, Solomon says this on the screen. The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. He's got his theology right. How much less this temple I have built. And the prophet Isaiah echoed the same thoughts in the bit that's quoted in verse 49 and 50 of today's reading. Heaven is my throne, God said, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all things? Friends, God made everything. Literally everything. He's much bigger than, than we think. He's more powerful, more loving, more perfect in wisdom and understanding, more holy, more gracious, 
more forgiving than we can ever imagine. He cannot be contained. He cannot be controlled. But he can be known. He desires to be known. And in his love, he reveals himself to his people time and time again and comes to save them. And that leads us to history lesson number two. Israel consistently rejected God and the rescuers he sent. We've already seen how uh, they treated Joseph. Of course, he was the one who God used to save them from certain starvation. What about Moses, the great leader that God sent? But when he intervened to stop the, the two fellows fighting, they chased him out of town. And then when he re returned and rescued them with mighty signs and wonders against him, a bit like Stephen, actually. Um, and how did the people respond? Verse 39, our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. It's interesting, as soon as we refuse to have God as king of our heart, something else always takes his rightful place. Look at verse 40. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And that was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. Dear friends, like our spiritual ancestors, we too fill our hearts with idols. We medicate the pain of our broken lives with all sorts of things other than God Himself. As Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. But with God, there's always hope. History lesson number three, Israel's history points to the ultimate saviour, Jesus. And Tony, thanks for giving the heads up for us on this one before you read the reading. God promised to bless the whole world through Abraham and, and we see him faithfully protect that promise despite the disobedience of his people. But I want us to draw our attention just if I can go to one verse, verse 37. After this long, glowing description of Moses in Stephen's speech, Moses who led God's people out of slavery in Egypt, Moses says, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. A, a great leader who will save God's people like Moses did. Lead them out of slavery like Moses did. And teach them the living words of God like Moses did. What a beautiful description that is. Fulfilled, of course, in Jesus, the living word. And then as Stephen comes to his conclusion, he pulls the lessons together in a very powerful punishment. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Lesson number one shows they actually have not got God. They have not listened to Him with their ears. 
those uh, images are straight from the Old Testament, Leviticus and Jeremiah, showing that they don't belong to God at all. They certainly don't have God contained. Why? Lesson number two. You are just like your ancestors. Rebellious murderers of all the people God sent to save you, including, and here comes lesson number three, including the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus himself, betrayed and murdered. They were looking at their history as proof against Jesus. Stephen showed that their history actually pointed them to Jesus. And instead of trusting in him and turning to him for forgiveness, they nailed him to the cross. And true to form, they kill Stephen too. And Luke doesn't want us to miss the irony of their actions. See, by stoning Stephen, they proved everything he just told them was true. It's an absolutely tragic moment. Absolutely tragic moment. They demonstrated in the most ugly way that they had not listened to the law of Moses and they refused to obey it. Have you ever noticed in the Bible that so often in the darkest moments of human sin and evil, the beautiful thread of God's grace weaves its way into the story. Did you notice who oversaw the whole murderous event? A bloke called Saul. Now oh, we'll meet him in coming chapters. He later had a change of heart and a change of name. became called Paul. Years later in Acts chapter 22, we'll read that he, he looks back on this event, this significant event, as being important not just in the life of the church, but in his own story. God is so good at using really bad situations to bring the light of the gospel to people caught in darkness. And look at what happens as a direct result of Stephen's death. Acts chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout, and we should be hearing Acts 1.8 here, Judea and Samaria. Out they go. And what do they do? Jump down to verse 4. Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Isn't this wonderful? The gospel is going out just like Jesus said back in Acts 1.8. God is so good at turning really bad situations into something more wonderful than we'd ever, ever imagined or expect or anything to pray for. Today we've looked briefly at the life and death of the first Christian martyr. Interestingly, the word martyr comes from the Greek word that we translate as witness. So back in Acts 1.8, Jesus literally says, you will be my martyrs. But the question we need to ask is not so much, would we die for him? But will we live for him? Now that same Saul who watched all of, all of this, he later became Paul and he read like half the New Testament. 
He put it like this in Romans chapter 6. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Friends, so often God uses persecution. He's done it hundreds of times down through the history of church. And He uses persecution to fire up the church and to spread the gospel. But let's not wait till our nation comes to that. Let us be His witnesses now. Like Amy said, wherever we are. Living sacrifices. Living for His praise and glory living for the growth of his kingdom. Amen.